we're, we're sheep and we need somebody to flick the lights in the, out there. And somebody say, hey, come on. Somebody needed a shepherd's staff to get everybody in here. So that's good. So like all the metaphors, that of the flock can certainly refer uh, to the universal church. In fact, uh, Jesus says that he has those of his flock that aren't in this fold, but he's going to bring them in. Uh, and so, but we, the most clear and most strict interpretation of the times that we find the flock in the New Testament refer specifically to a local congregation, a local church. I want to show you a couple of the verses just quickly as we jump into this. Acts 20 and verse 28, we'll see this verse again, but it's one of the times where Paul's using it. He's meeting with the elders at or the pastors of uh, the church at Ephesus, and he tells them to take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. And so we see that the church is that flock. And specifically, what is he talking about? He's not talking about the, the universal church in the sense that the, he set these elders of the church of Ephesus over all the church, you know, across all nations and all believers. No, he's talking about their specific flock in Ephesus, that he made them the overseers. He's not telling them to feed every Christian everywhere. He's telling them they've, that God has given them the specific obligation to feed their local congregation. And we see this consistently with the flock. Let me show you one more in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is Peter who, who uses the same terminology. If we backed up and we looked at verse 1, we would see he's talking to the elders right, of a specific church. And he says, feed the flock of God. And then he clarifies, which is among you? He's talking about a local church. Sometimes when we talk about the flock, certainly prophetically and doctrinally, we can understand the universal church. But the most literal interpretation of this is a local body of believers that First Baptist New Philadelphia is a flock. And Oakland Heights Baptist Church in Cartersville is a flock. And so when we speak about flocks and when, when the Bible speaks about the flock, the, the thing, the recurring theme, as you see, as he's speaking to the elders of, of both of those churches, the key word for today is leadership. So we're going to talk about the leadership that God has designed and called to be over those local congregations. And uh, what are the implications of that for both the leaders and for the flock, for both the, the pastors and for those congregations. And so let's just jump right in. Uh, we're kind of short on time in this session, so you're going to have to listen quickly, um, and then and I'll finish. So if we got a problem, it's because you weren't listening quickly enough. <laughs> All right, so the, uh, Roman numeral one in your notes is what we're called to be. What are we called to be? We're called to be sheep. Man, that's not very flattering. I think uh, when you think about sheep, you think of how they're used. We use it kind of a, in a derogatory term, don't we? What a bunch of sheep. They're just a bunch of sheep. Why do we say that? Because sheep are dumb. I mean, God's just being honest about who we are. And, and sheep are defenseless. And we don't really like to think, I don't like to think of myself as defenseless. But that's who we are. We're sheep. And, and sheep, uh, they, they're prone to wander. Um, their followers. And so it's important, obviously, to have leadership, and we'll see that as we go forward. But nobody um, really in loves the name sheep, that we are a sheep. I mean, 
Joe mentioned yesterday, that nobody has a team mascot of the sheep. We're the sheep. Let's go out and get it. You know, I mean, people would rather be the Quakers, <laughs> the, the fighting Quakers, and they still won't be the sheep. Nobody wants to be the sheep, but the sheep, the flock is, although it has a negative connotation and it reveals some of the things about us that aren't so strong and aren't so intelligent and aren't so self-sufficient. It does remind us of what a great shepherd we have. And we are the flock, but the real glory of being the flock is that we have a great shepherd. And so uh, A in your notes, letter A, is the flock is bought by the great shepherd. When we talk about leadership of the flock, certainly it all starts with our great shepherd. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2, it'll be up on the screen. You can check it out, verses 24 and 25. Man, I'm just telling you, you can't ask for a better shepherd than the shepherd that we have. It says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness. Man, praise the Lord for that. In whose stripes ye were healed. And he says, for ye were as sheep going astray, but now are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. And we'll, we'll notice that, that he uses both the word shepherd to describe Jesus as the leader of the church, and also the bishop. And we'll see how those relate to each other in a second. But when we talk about Jesus being the shepherd, he truly is the best shepherd. And these are the words that God's word describes him as. Uh, John chapter 10 and verse 11 describes him as the good shepherd who accomplishes our justification. He's the good shepherd. John chapter 10 and verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Man, praise the Lord, what a shepherd we have that would lay down his life for us. And this reminds us, those of us who are called shepherds in the local congregation, to lay down our life for the flock, for the sheep. Man, that's what an incredible example. It's, this is going to be a high standard to live up to if you're a pastor today, buckle up. It's going to be a rough ride. If you feel like God's called you to be a pastor, it'll be eye-opening. Maybe it can give you a pause to, uh, to, to ask the Lord, is this really? Is this really what you want me to do? Uh, the second thing we see is that Jesus is the great shepherd. And Hebrews 13 tells us that he's the great shepherd who accomplishes our sanctification. Not only does he lay down his life for the sheep, but listen to what Hebrews 13 says. It says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, what does he do? He makes you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's, Jesus is not just a good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. He's the great shepherd that continually works in us to make us perfect. Man, what a great God. He doesn't just save us. He's continually working through us, long-suffering. As many times as we fail, he continues to do that good work, to perform that work in us over and over for the purpose to make us perfect. And if if you're, if you're a pastor, if you're a shepherd, we'll remember that God calls you to do the same, to, to invest in the sheep, to perfect the sheep, to continually work in them. The, the third 
way we use see Jesus as the shepherd is in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. He's the chief shepherd. And he accomplishes our glorification. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 5, 4. After he's talking to those, Peter, remember we just read the verse, he tells the, those elders to feed the flock of God which is among you. And then he turns it and he says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And it reminds us, man, if, if you're a shepherd of a local congregation, or if God's called you to be a shepherd, that Jesus will reward the faithful. For all the work that you put into it, he, he's going to evaluate your work. He's going to evaluate you as a shepherd. And if you're faithful, if you'll feed the flock of God, if you'll take the oversight in the right way and be an ensample to the flock, then he has a special crown for you, a crown of glory. Man, praise the Lord for that. God is good, man. He's a, it, Jesus is the absolute best shepherd like all these metaphors, we mentioned this yesterday, but like all the metaphors, uh, the flock shows us that there's a clear definition of who comprises the flock, right? You, the shepherd knows which sheep are his and which are not. Jesus knows in the universal church which sheep belong to him and which don't. He, and a local church pastor needs to be able to clearly identify which sheep he is accountable for. Because he is accountable for them. We see in Luke chapter 15 that story of the shepherd that Jesus says there was a man who had a hundred sheep and one of them went astray. He knew how many there were. So when he counted up and there were 99, one of them's missing and he went to find that sheep. So the pastor of a local church has to be able to clearly define who is in his flock. But the first thing that we see is this example. When we talk about sheep, when we talk about leadership, it all starts with the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the bishop of our souls, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate leader, and he is the one who bought us. He laid down his life. He purchased us with his own blood. We are his. But, you know, sometimes it's easy to say, I'm going to follow the good shepherd. Oh, I'm submissive to the great shepherd, and I'll let him do whatever he wants in my life. Um, but just like we heard, it's easy to say, I love God, but if you don't love your brother, you're a liar. See, God doesn't just stand in heaven, Jesus at, at, the, at the right hand of the Father and as the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd, and we don't just get to say, yes, we are in total submission. We will follow you because we're your sheep. Well, God's going to make it more practical for you, and he's going to give you some under-shepherds that you are supposed to follow, that you're supposed to submit yourself to. And so point B in your notes is this. The flock is led by pastors. By pastors. And uh, that word pastor, you may know this uh, if you speak another language, uh, but the word pastor is just a transliteration of the word, same word that we get uh, the word pasture from, right? You take the herd out to pasture to feed them, right? Um, and that's, he's a shepherd. That's what the word means. In fact, uh, maybe you're like me and you love Mexican food. Um, there's, a, there's a meal called tacos al pastor. And you may be thinking, wait a second, that's made with pork. And it is. But originally, where that, this is important for you to know your food and where it comes from. <laughs> maybe the most important thing we'll cover in this session. I'm just kidding. Uh, but th that came from Lebanese immigrants who came to Mexico. And they would originally make their food with sheep. 
but there weren't a lot of sheep in Mexico. There were a lot of pigs. And so it kept the name El, El Pastor because of the way they would cook it in Lebanon. But it came from the sheep. The pasture is just a uh, shepherd. In fact, I've got for you here, uh, I want you to see these different names that there are. Just like there are various names to given to God the Father, right? We know that. He's, he's the Father. He's Jehovah. He's Almighty. He's Ancient of Days. There's various names, and they give us a different perspective on who he is. Right? We know God the Son is the same. He's, he's God the Son. He's the Word. He's Emmanuel. He's King of Kings. He's a lion. He's a lamb. And each one shows us a different perspective of who he is. The same is true with the Holy Spirit. He's the Comforter. He's also the Spirit of Truth. He's the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit. And we're looking at the church. We see that there are different metaphors for the church, and they give us a different understanding of who the church is. The church, we saw, is, is a family. Now we see it's a flock. And to help us to understand it a little bit more. And the same thing is true of the leaders of those churches. God gives various names to them. And so I want to run through these names really quickly to understand the leaders that God has placed over these local bodies, these local flocks. And the first one is pastor. That's the one we're most familiar with. It's the one in our fellowship we use the most. It's most, used most frequently by us, but it's used least frequently in Scripture. In fact, you'll only find this in the New Testament one time. Only one time. But that same Greek word is translated uh, 17 other times as shepherd. And that's what the word means. It really means a shepherd. And so uh, Ephesians 4.11 is, is on the screen. It, it uses the one use that we have of it. We read it uh, yesterday in session. We'll look at it a couple more times today. But it's specifically that God gave some gifts to men, and some of those gifts were apostles, and some were prophets, and some were evangelists, and some were pastors and teachers. So the name pastor helps us to understand, and the understanding of a shepherd helps us to understand that role that church leaders play. They're supposed to fulfill the same as a shepherd. So what's a shepherd do? Well, you know that, right? He leads the sheep, he feeds the sheep, he rescues the lost sheep. He protects sheep from wolves. He lays down his life for the sheep. Those are some things that we'll see today. But the name indicates, and this is in your notes, the name indicates a shepherd's custody. When God gives you the name pastor, it's so that you'll understand who that pastor is supposed to be. He's a shepherd who has custody of the flock. The other name, the next name that we're going to look at is the name elder. It's another name that God uses for the same office uh, of that of a pastor, is an elder. And this, this name is actually the one used most in our culture, but it's the one that's least understood. It's most misused. And people don't understand what elders are, and oftentimes people think that they are uh, like deacons, and especially in Reformed churches. You'll find people using this name, elder, uh, as not a pastor. They would make a distinction between a pastor and an elder. But the Bible doesn't make that distinction. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, that those verses that we looked up, you can write that down and look it up later. But um, he uses those two words of the shepherd and elders, he uses them interchangeably. He starts off, to the elders, and then he walks through and says, feed the flock, taking the oversight, be the ensample. And when the chief shepherd appears, then he'll give you a crown of glory. And so that name elder helps us to understand that role a little bit differently. Not only does he care for and lead and feed the flock, the word elder helps us to understand, and, and your blank there is the name indicates a spiritual maturity. That a pastor or an elder of a church 
provides that wisdom and experience and maturity that a church needs. And by the way, that's what, pastors need that. When Paul lays out the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, one of the things that he says is he shouldn't be a novice. He needs to have some experience and wisdom, and he needs spiritual maturity to be able to lead the flock. So that's what elder helps us understand. The last one you have in your notes is bishop. And this maybe this one's used uh, by ethnic churches, black churches a lot of times. You might hear them refer to their pastor as a bishop, and if you're from a predominantly white church, that may seem a little strange to you. But that's a biblical word for the same office. It's a, it's a Bible word, the one God chooses to use. And the name means uh, an inspector or an overseer, somebody who's going to look over and superintend the church. So he rules the church. Uh, he evaluates the church. He directs the church. He manages resources. It shows us a little different perspective on who this pastor is supposed to be. He's supposed to be a shepherd, have the shepherd's custody. He has a spiritual maturity, but this name, Bishop, indicates, and this is your blank in your notes, indicates a sober responsibility. That God has set this person as an overseer for the church, and he's to superintend, he's to, he's to inspect things to make sure the church is heading in the right direction and that it has the resources that it's supposed to be, uh, needs to accomplish its values and its mission. So we, we recognize from this that God has entrusted you pastors over something so precious. We talked about the church being the bride of Christ. Man, we better be careful about how we oversee Christ's bride and how we superintend it, how we inspect it, make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to. We're, we are over the body of Christ, and we're to make sure it's functioning the way that it's supposed to function. So there are these different names that help us to understand maybe uh, more comprehensively who the church is, and specifically for pastors, what their role is within that church. They're, they have a shepherd's custody. They're a pastor. They're an elder. They have a spiritual maturity. And they're a bishop. They have a sober responsibility to care for and to manage that church. So real quick, in your notes, we need to cover this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, but you do need to know the qualifications of pastors. That's uh, number one in your notes led by pastors and you need to understand what those qualifications are uh, I don't know if the, I don't think that all the verses are in there first Timothy 3 1 through 7 and Titus 1 5 through 9 give you a list of the character qualities and that's what they all are they're all character they're all spiritual development they're all about godliness not once in the qualifications for a bishop or a pastor is education listed but I want you to know, strangely, in our culture, when you say, I'm a pastor, one of the first questions they're going to ask you, where'd you go to Bible college? Where'd you go to seminary? What's your education? Who was your instructor? But that's not on God's list. It, also on God's list, thank the Lord, thank you, God, uh, not intelligence. <laughs> I still qualify to be a pastor. You know, sometimes we think, though, I'm just, this guy's, he just, he ain't got enough intelligence to lead God's people. And I, I do think as you walk with the Lord and as you love his word, he'll give you wisdom. Like David said, I have more understanding than my teachers because I love your word. So I, I'm not saying that he won't have knowledge of God's word and wisdom and discernment and understanding. 
But maybe his intelligence quotient isn't as high as others. That's okay. If you're a brick shy of a load, God can still use you to be a pastor. You know what else is in the list? Business savvy. Hey, you know what everybody wants in a pastor nowadays is somebody who's an entrepreneur or somebody who's got great organization skills. That's, that's not listed in there either. Hmm. Maybe some of the failure that we keep seeing in churches is because we keep people taking people under a different set of qualifications that meet some requirements that God never wanted, and they don't meet the requirements that God specifically lists. The requirements for a pastor are not about his appearance, about his skill, about his eloquence. It's not about his booming baritone voice. It's about his character. It's about his spiritual development and his godliness. And if you accomplish all the other things without accomplishing 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, you will destroy yourself and that church. We see it all around us. But I, I do want to point one verse, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Good, it's already up there. He says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And this is what we would usually call a calling. People are always asking, are, when did you get your calling? I do believe that God specifically gives a desire. But that's what it is. It's a desire. And it's something to be desired. It's a good thing to desire. If God gives you the desire to be a bishop or a pastor or an elder, man, that's a good thing. But it's not just a desire like, man, that would be cool. Uh, I, I love uh, Kel Horvath's uh, testimony. I spoke with him recently and heard him say uh, that when he first got into ministry, to be a youth pastor, he was thinking, oh, that's a pretty cool gig, you know? You eat pizza, you play games, you go on fun trips, that'd be good. But the desire for the office of a bishop is something far more than that. It's not just something you think that would be nice. It's a, de it's a desire that drives you. It's a desire that redefines the priorities of your life. It's a desire that you want, and you just, it's like it's burning within you. That's what you've got to do. The pastors who are in the room understand that. It supersedes all other desires. And some, unquestionably, in our culture, they enter ministry for the wrong reasons. They don't have that kind of desire for the work. That, see, that's what you're desiring, a work. Not a pulpit, but a work. Not a platform, but a work. Lots of people get involved for money, which is ironic. <laughs> <laughs> because money is slim. It truly is. Listen, I'm, I'm not talking about me personally. Man, our church honors me. And, and maybe some of the pastors that you see on TV, you would think, man, yeah, there's a lot of money in missionaries. Some of the, um, you know, celebrity pastors you might see flying around in jets and stuff. But I'm going to tell you, for, for the vast, vast majority of pastors, there's not a lot of money in it. If you get in looking for money, you're going to be sorely disappointed because I know most of the pastors I know are having to be real strict with their budget. Some of them are having to work other jobs or find side incomes to fulfill the calling that God had on their life. And we see that with the Apostle Paul as well. He was a tent maker so that he could fulfill the calling that God had on him. And we have to be careful not to conflate a calling with a career. Now hang on a second, because a lot of people are going to college to get a career. 
Bible college to come out, and then they're looking for a job. You know, hey, well, I'm putting out my resume. I'm not saying that God's called you to that, looking for open doors. I'm not against that. But you better make sure it's a calling and not just a career because the money is slim. And if you're in it for the money, there will be never be enough money. Because do you notice the, the, the guy in my neck of the woods in Atlanta? He, he's got some jet, but man, he needs a bigger jet. It just never will be enough. And you know, another thing people get into it for is prestige, for respect and influence. Let me tell you. If money is slim, prestige is skinny. It, it may look like, and, and hopefully you do have pastors that you respect and revere. And that you have, you look at them and think, man, I, that's an example, and I would like to be like that person. But it doesn't, uh, you know, people don't call them us reverend anymore, which is kind of good. That makes me feel really awkward. But it's reflective of how people see pastors in our society. It's not a respected position outside the church. And unfortunately, even within the church, it's not a respected position. Some people get in it for the schedule. Because I often joke that, you know, I only work one hour a week, you know. That'd be funny if it wasn't so sad. Seriously, most pastors are struggling to try to balance this enormous weight of ministry with their, fam their ministry to their family, their ministry as a father, as a husband, to be the Christian that God wants you to be. In fact, most pastors are running themselves ragged in ministry. It's not a great schedule. Don't get it for that. You'll be disappointed. I mean, it's not that bad. Uh, look at my friend on the screen here. I mean, <laughs> they say ministry's tough. I'm 37. I feel great. I don't know what they're talking about. Some people get in it for the schedule, though. They're going to be disappointed. Some people get in it for power, authority. And there's an element for those who are insecure that, man, it, that looks appealing. Then people would respect me. Then I would have authority. Then I could be the boss. And they find out that having a little bit of authority, and it is a little bit of authority, doesn't cure their insecurity. It heightens it. I mean, just consider for a second, you're going to teach on giving to people who love money. You're not going to have a whole lot of power, right, in the sense of human authority. They're not going to look at you as somebody who's really authoritative. You're trying to preach missions to people who love their own kingdom and are stuck in an American dream. You're going to preach evangelism to people who want the world's approval more than they want God's. You're going to preach about the word of God to people who want to be their own authority. You're going to try to lead people who don't want to be led. That's the reality. If you get into it for any other reason than I desire the work then you're going to be disappointed. You're going to burn out. That's the qualifications. Uh, We've got to move quickly to the plurality of pastors because this is what we see in every single church in the New Testament. We see a plurality of pastors. There's not just one pastor in any church that we can find in the New Testament. Now, just consider these. They're in your notes there. But in the church of Jerusalem, we see elders, plural, in the church at Jerusalem. In Philippians, we find bishops, plural, in the church of Philippi. 
when Paul went on his missionary journey, and one of the churches he started was that of Ephesus. We read the verse earlier uh, regarding Acts chapter 20, but it says that he met with the elders, plural, of the church of Ephesus. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, there were pastors who were over them at Thessalonica. In Acts 14, Paul ordained elders in every church. Every church he starts, he goes back and, plant and ordains elders, plural, in every city. Same thing in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Titus is charged to ordain elders, plural, in every city, singular. So there ought to be a plurality of pastors. And so in your notes it says uh, it should be carefully noted that the church is not a dictatorship. There's not one guy who's the supreme leader of the church. There's a team of pastors. There's a team of elders. There's plurality there. And neither is the church an oligarchy, ruled by a small team of pastors who rule over everything, and, and there's nobody else has any say in it. Uh, because what we find in the church is the, the whole church in, is involved through Scripture. We find this, the examples are, are written there, whether it's Acts chapter 6, and it's the, uh, the, the congregation who are involved in choosing who the deacons would be. Or in Acts chapter 15, when, when Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem, it says that the congregation there in Antioch wanted them to go. They're the ones that sent them back to Jerusalem to confront the false teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the congregation approved someone to take the missions gift to Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians 8, the local church's congregations chose someone to travel with Paul so that they could see how he was spending their missions giving. And the local church epistles were not just addressed to the pastors, but to the churches, to the congregations, and then specifically speaking to the leadership as well. And we do notice, though, that the issues of ecclesi ecclesiology or uh, church issues are specifically given in the pastoral epistles, right? Timothy and Titus. That's where he begins to lay out the ruling and the governing and how the church should be led. But the, the congregation is involved in it. it. It's not just some guys who don't ever hear input from the church, from the congregation. There's a team of pastors, and they listen to the people, and they care for the people. And we'll see a little bit more of that as we go forward, but we've got to keep going right now to help you understand the pastor of pastors. You know, it's inevitable when you have multiple leaders, they're going to differ on things. They're going to disagree. And so Acts chapter 15 and you can just write this down, verses 6 through 21. Show us how a local church can operate with a team of pastors, but with one leader of leaders, one pastor of pastors, one you might call him a senior pastor or a lead pastor in our terminology today. But what happens is there's some false teaching that's emanating from the church of Jerusalem, and it, it makes its way all the way to Antioch. And it's about this idea that the Jews need to be, or these Gentiles need to be circumcised after they're saved, and they need to begin keeping the law as well. And so the congregation in Antioch says, hey, Paul and Barnabas, you guys need to go to Jerusalem and settle this thing and find out what's going on. Why are they teaching this stuff? And this is troubling to us because we're a bunch of Gentiles and we don't want to be circumcised. So they go. And, and what happens in that church, Paul and Barnabas are there to share about what's going on there, but the elders, plural, of Jerusalem get around, and they're all sharing. And as they're sharing, they're all listening. But ultimately, because they're differing opinions and thoughts and convictions, 
there's one guy who stands up at the end. His name is James. And he says, here's my sentence. He, okay, I've heard everybody. Now this is where we're landing on it. But there's beautiful unity afterwards. Actually, that concludes with all the elders, no matter where they stood on the issue, writing to different churches and saying, this is what we've decided. This is what we came to, what the truth of God is. And they sent it out in unison, in solidarity together. That's the way a a local church ought to function. It ought to function with uh, elders getting together and being free to express your differences and different convictions and how you see Scripture. But ultimately, there's got to be somebody who is the final I give the sentence guy. You may call him a lead pastor. And then he can, in solidarity with the rest of them, give that decision to the congregation. So uh, we see that a church should be led by a team of pastors. Here's where it gets kind of difficult, though. You know, most churches in America are under 100. The majority of churches are under 100 people. And we often think of uh, pastors as a career position. And so you're thinking, man, we can't afford multiple pastors. Well, maybe you can't pay multiple pastors, or maybe you can't pay any pastor full-time. But hopefully, Lord willing, if you're doing the things that we're talking about in this fellowship, and we'll talk about tomorrow about training men and making disciples and equipping leaders, you're going to end up with multiple men who are biblically qualified according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And so you, that ought to be your goal. You ought to strive for that. But what if, you, what if you're not there? When we first started Connect Church, uh, when we first started, uh, we were under the authority of our sending church. And so their authority was our authority. But then when we constituted, when we had our covenant service and we were, we were on our own, we were now going to be self-sufficient financially, we're going to be self-replicating as far as reproduction goes, and we're going to be self-governing in leadership. But at the time, we had one pastor. Well, Lord willing, man, God will give you somebody who's got a heart because God places people in the bodies we saw yesterday as it pleases him. And we had a guy in our ministry who God had called to be a pastor. He desired that work, and he proved himself faithfully. He met the requirements there, and we ordained him. That gave us two. But you know, two didn't really give me a whole lot of accountability. You know, it's 50-50, then what do you do? It's like his voice didn't even matter. So what we did, and I'm not saying you have to do this, it's just an idea, and it's in your notes, uh, that an additional idea to provide plurality. If you have a mother church, ask the pastor of the mother church to serve as one of your pastors, as an external pastor. And that may be weird. We're going to talk about a little bit about autonomy of local churches, and it, you're kind of concerned about whether that threatens the autonomous nature of a, self, a self-governing church. But in your notes, I've left you some, uh, some instances that we can see Paul's leadership in absentia. When he was absent, he provided leadership to those churches. And I think that's a, it was an important thing for us, that we wanted to have a plurality of pastors, so we found a way to make that happen. Maybe you have a sister church or a mother church who can help you with that. But looking for men that you can ordain, if, if you just can't find anything, what do you do then? Well, our cultures come up with a lot of good ideas good human ideas like uh well we'll have congregation voting that'll be better or we'll get deacons and we'll get a bunch of deacons and and they can uh rule the church and all those would be in error um you would be better off having one biblically qualified man than 10 
unqualified men. All right? Work toward having one leader. But work toward having a multitude of leaders. But if you only have one, you're safer there. In fact, there may even be a biblical allowance for that in, in some ways. If, and I'll just point you to 1 Timothy chapter 3. When he's giving the character qualities of a leader, he says, here's the character quality for a bishop, singular. But when he gets to deacons, he says, here are the, the, the qualities for bishops. I mean, I'm sorry, deacons, plural. So maybe if you're in a crunch... I still think you're better off sticking with God's ordained leadership where he has vested leadership in a pastor. And then as you can develop someone and you have someone who's qualified, not according to education or oratory skills or their looks or their intelligence or their business savvy or organization skills, but according to God's word, his character and his spiritual development, then you get an extra guy. Okay, we got to move on from this and see uh, point number C or point number C, point letter C, in the notes. I, I usually know the difference between letters and numbers, but C is the flock is served by deacons. It's served by deacons, and that's who deacons are. They are so important to the church. Uh, they aren't meant to lead the church, to rule the church, but they are meant to serve the church, and they are incredibly valuable. In fact, uh, when Paul talks about the, qual- the qualifications for deacons. He goes on to say, if they use that office well, they purchase to themselves a good degree. It's not just beneficial towards the church. It's beneficial towards, uh, towards the deacon as well. But let me show you Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, there, deacons are only mentioned by name twice in the whole Bible. Only mentioned twice. This is one of them where Paul says uh, to the church of Philippi, uh, that he's writing this letter to all the saints, which are in Christ Jesus, with, and he lists those two offices of the church, the bishops, or elders, or pastors, and the deacons. That's one of the times, one of the two times, they're mentioned by name. The second is in 1 Timothy 3, when he gives the character qualities for who a, who a deacon needs to be. And I'll, we won't go through that today. You can, you can go through it and, and look at it yourself um, but it's important to know that even their wives, for deacons' wives, there are qualifications for them as well. The word deacon, it comes, it's interesting, it comes from a compound word that means stirring up dust. And so not like deacons are stirring up dust in a negative way. It means that they're busy. It means that they're serving. They're active. They're not sitting in some room complaining about this or that. They are busy about the work of the church. In fact, the, the first time that we see what are probably deacons, they're not listed, they're not named deacons specifically, but the word that is used is the same word that's transliterated to deacon that they would serve is in Acts chapter 6. And what happens is there's conflict in the church of Jerusalem. The Grecian widows say, oh, we're not being cared for, and there's a conflict between the Jews and the Greeks. And there's uh, trouble, and so... You know what they do? They, the, the apostles there say, man, we got to give ourselves continually to prayer and to ministry of the word. So we're going to take seven men. and We're going to put them over this business. Their main job was to fix divisions, handle controversy and murmuring in the church. And they were busy about it. And we, we don't have a whole lot of talk, time to talk about them, but there's only two that we know anything about. And they're Philip and Stephen. Both of those two were not just hard workers. They were spiritual men 
who God used greatly. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, gives one of the most fantastic messages revealing from the Old Testament who Christ was. And, and Philip is the only person who's specifically called the evangelist. He did an amazing work. God did an amazing work through him. These aren't just some guys who will work hard and, and clean rooms or whatever. These are men who they set over the business, who met the qualifications of Acts chapter 6, 1 Timothy Three. Uh, we're not going to take time to go there because we've got to move on to the next thing. So that's who we're called to be. We're called to be sheep. What we're called to be sheep who are bought by the, by the great shepherd, who are led by pastors and served by deacons. But let's go to point number or two in your notes. Roman number two is what are we called to do? We're, we're called to equip. That's our word, equip. And then we'll look at God's uh, word that he uses for that. Uh, and go ahead and write down letter A, God calls pastors to perfect the flock. We're going to see what God calls pastors to do and what he calls the flock to do. But God calls pastors to perfect the saints. And we saw this, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to show you uh, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, just so you can see it again and bring us back up to speed, that he gave these gifts to men, and some of them were pastors and teachers, and then we have these three cascading purpose clauses. Why did God give the gifts of pastors and teachers? For the perfecting of the saints. And why did he call those pastors to perfect the saints? For the work of the ministry. And why does God want the saints to do the work of the ministry? For the edifying of the body of Christ. Remember I told you that it is work, right? If you desire the office of a bishop, you desire a good work and it will be work just notice in your notes there i left the work of a pastor what does a pastor do to rule to preach and teach to guard against wolves to pray for the sick sick to care for the church to know the flock and be known by them to watch for the souls of the flock to sacrifice for the flock to be in samples for others to follow to set church policy to ordain other elders and to perfect the saints those are all things that pastors elders, bishops, are specifically, explicitly called to do. That's the work that God has called you to do. Oh, you could take all that and summarize it with the perfecting of the saints. That's who God has called to do the perfecting, is pastors. If you desire the work, all those things in your notes, then man, God, maybe God's calling you to be a pastor. And if God's calling you to do that work, do the work of preparing for that. Get involved in your discipleship ministries. Get, talk to your pastors. Follow him around like gum on his shoe that he can't shake you loose. If he does, try to shake you loose. Sometimes he needs a little time. But, man, learn from him. Let him, let him perfect you. Go through the process. Live that calling out now before you have the title, before you have the office. But in that, in that verse, once again, we have Ephesians 4.11 up on the screen. Just to remind you, that it was mentioned before, but this is one office with two primary ministries. Do you see what they are? There? He's his some prophets, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. And then he comes to this one, he says, and some pastors and teachers. Not some pastors and some teachers, but some pastors and teachers. And I think we could agree that that's one office, with two primary ministries. And in your notes, uh, let's walk through what they are. The first one, let's consider the latter first, the, the, that of the teacher. And the primary, uh, that perfecting ministry of the pastor is, number one, to feed. 
He's to feed the flock. We've seen that a couple times already, right? Feed the flock. That's one of the main jobs of a shepherd, to make sure the sheep are being fed. And listen, pastors, there are a lot of things that the sheep can deal with if you just feed them. Maybe you don't have the intelligence, or maybe you don't have the education or the organizational skills or the business savvy. Maybe you don't have the appearance that makes everybody want to talk to you. You don't have the personality of someone who's really charismatic, but you know what you can do? You can feed the flock. And the sheep will get used to the voice of the shepherd, and they will know his voice, Jesus says. So make sure you feed the flock. That's what the great shepherd does, by the way. He is our example. Up on the screen, Psalm 23, we all know that uh, verse. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I know I'm going to be provided for. What's he say? He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. I'm going to be taken care of. I'm going to be fed because of that great shepherd. That's who we ought to be as pastors, to feed the flock. Again, 1 Peter 5, we see that again on the screen. He's talking to the elders which are among you. I exhort, who am also an elder, and I know what it's like, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. What's he telling them to do? First and foremost, feed the flock. Feed the flock. You know, it's interesting that this Peter's writing this. And he, he's the guy, do you remember, he denied Christ three times? But Jesus told him, right when, in the context of telling him he would deny him three times, he said, I'll go before you into Galilee. Well, when he meets him in Galilee, you know what he says to him three times? Simon, do you love me? Then what's he say? Feed my sheep. Man, God is serious about shepherds providing for their sheep. Acts 20 and 28, Paul's writing to that church, uh, or he's talking to the leaders, the pastors, the elders of Ephesus, and he tells them to feed the flock of God. And he ends it with, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Listen, if Jesus, the great shepherd, purchased the flock with his own blood, I'm sure he's very serious about you feeding the flock. If he cares so much that he would shed his blood, feed them. All right, the second thing we see from that uh, Ephesians 4, 11, he gave some pastors and teachers. We looked at the teachers, that perfecting ministry is that of uh, teaching. But the second one of pastoring, that's the, the ministry of lead. That God's called pastors to feed, and he's called pastors to lead, to be a shepherd, to lead that flock where they need to go. And I say the word lead because it's a softer, gentler word. That's actually not the word that God uses. He uses a little more stern language, a little stronger language, when he, he, he tells them to rule. And that's kind of uncomfortable for us, but some of that is because, uh, well, we'll talk about that in a second. But let, let me show you this. We, it's easy to say, I'm going to follow the Lord. But when God gives you someone and says, okay, then follow this person, it oh, becomes much more difficult. It, it kind of puts it all into perspective. It, it's a little, it's where the rubber meets the road. So I want to show you, oh, no, no, it's not up there. Let me just read it to you. Romans 13, 1, he does it with the government. He puts a, always works through a system and a structure of authority. He says, let every one of you be subject unto the powers that be, the higher powers. He says, for the powers that be or, are ordained of God. God has placed human authority over us in government. And it's one thing to say, 
I'll submit to God. And he says, okay, well, submit to this person. Oh, well, that's, that's different, God. They want my money. They want my taxes. They're putting rules on me. Well, I thought you said you could submit to me. Submit to them. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He, it's one thing to say, God, I'll obey you. But when you're living at home and your parents say, I want you to do this or that, are you going to obey? It gets a little tougher. It's not quite as abstract or ethereal, nebulous. It becomes very concrete. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be ye followers of me, as I also am of Christ. See, God always gives us some human authorities to follow, and that's what he does in the church. Hebrews 13.17 is up on the screen. And it says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. God's called elders to rule. I'm with you. That, that's a little harsh. Let, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Surely there's some other word that God wants to use, but he says the same thing in 1 Timothy 5.17. He says, let the elders that gently guide, no, the, the elders that suggest, no, the elders that rule well, be counted worthy of double honor. And we're pretty uncomfortable with that idea of allowing somebody to rule over us. I mean, you can be honest. I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with the guy who has to rule over a flock. That's, that sounds awful. Part of that is because of our sin nature. And we all want to be master of our own domain. We all want to be our own authority. We don't like anybody being over us. You're not the boss of me. But some of it's because we don't understand Jesus' definition of rule. So let me show it to you, because this is important. And maybe you're a pastor, and you're starting to feel a little, oh, yeah, rule over. Crack my knuckles. I'm ready to rule. So you definitely need to hear this. Okay, Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus says, Jesus called them unto them and said unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to, what's the word? Rule over the Gentiles. What do they do? They exercise lordship over them. And they're great ones. What do they do? They exercise authority upon them. Right? That's the, way our, that's the way our human minds think about ruling. But he very quickly says, But so shall it not be among you. You know who he's talking to? He's talking to the apostles. The embryo of the church. Who would be the very first church leaders? He's trying to help them to understand ruling over someone is not oppressing them. It's not manipulating them so that they can serve you. No, in fact, he goes on and says, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. You, you want to be great? You want to be a ruler? You be a servant. 1 Peter chapter 5 echoes this. E evidently, uh, Peter understood, finally, what that means. And remember, verse 1, he's talking to elders, and he says in verse 2, feed the flock of God which is among you, and he says, taking the oversight thereof, there's the leading part, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Now check this out. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. In case you don't, I'm sure you know what an sample is. It's, it's a pattern. It's a template. You're giving them something that they can follow with their life. So ruling is not lording. Pastors are commanded to take the oversight 
and to rule. But they're to do that by being an ensample. And they're not to dominate people. We, we see this also with the way the great shepherd leads. Up on the screen is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11. It says, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd and shall, oh listen to how Jesus rules, shall gather the lambs with his arm and shall carry them in his bosom. That doesn't sound like he's dominating and oppressing them. And he says, and shall gently lead those that are with young. You see, that great shepherd has a heart of love. And it causes him not to oppress and dominate the sheep, but to care for them and to lead them gently. We, we looked at, and let's do this real quick, uh, Psalm 23, 1 through 4. I know we know those verse. We saw that he lay, makes us to lie down in green pastures, and man, he's feeding us. He leads them beside the still waters, and then he says, he restoreth my soul, he leadeth me, and the paths of righteousness. That's how he leads. The, the good shepherd, he, he's going to make sure you're getting fed. Green pastures, still waters. And he's going to make sure you get led. And by the way, leading implies he's going there too. He's living in the, in the path of righteousness, and he's just bringing you along after him. He goes on. And says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Did you notice that? Man, there's, this is who pastors ought to be. We ought to be feeding, we ought to be leading. And I love this part, that even when some of the flock is going through the valley of the shadow of death, where's the shepherd? With them. When your flock is going through something, you ought to be with them. When they face a dangerous situation that would put you in danger, you go with them. They ought to be able to take comfort in knowing, I'm going through this, but my pastor's right here with me. Not all pastors do that, though, do they? Or people we call pastors. When the going gets tough, they get going. And I mean leaving. They're nowhere to be found in the valley of shadow of death. Why are people jumping churches every two to three years? When there's conflict in the church, when things get tough, why are pastors leaving? Well, Jesus is going to tell us why. John chapter 10, and verse 11, he tells you, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he gives a different name to those who are leaving. He says, but he that is an hireling, and, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep or not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep. You're on your own. And fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth. Why? Because he's a hireling. That's who he is. By the way, the name is, is helpful. It's a hireling. It's somebody who's in it to get paid. Right? The difference between a career and a calling is not just what the, whether they're qualified or not, but it's also about what they do when trouble comes. I'll get money somewhere else. This ain't worth it. And they flee. And the, the ultimate reason, though, because he's a hireling and he careth not for the sheep. So, pastors, we've got to feed like the good shepherd. We've got to lead like the good shepherd. We feed him with green pastures. Not some dried up pasture. 
green pastures and still waters, and we lead them in the path of righteousness' sake, and when they go through the valley of the shadow of death, we're there. Both parts are necessary, feed and lead. Listen, no amount of fellowship and caring and loving can substitute for a steady diet of the Word of God. And no amount of teaching can compensate for not caring or for caring. We need both. We need pastors who feed and lead. And by the way, this is how God evaluates pastors. First Timothy chapter 5, we read over it briefly. Listen to what he says. Let the elders that rule well, that's the leading, be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine, leading and feeding. Those are the two things that God says are the evaluation of a pastor. And by the way, in our fellowship of churches, let me tell you, we are so blessed for a lot of different reasons. But one of the main reasons why we're blessed is because we have a lot of pastors who lead and feed like the good shepherd. They truly do the work to labor in word and doctrine, and they love and care for, they rule well. They're not dominating, but they're not negligent. They're leading, they're ruling well. If that's the kind of pastor you got, you ought to just give thanks. Maybe the one thing you need to walk out of here today is to say, man, I am so blessed to have a gift. That's what God calls them, a gift, like a pastor I got. But pastors, those are your two perfecting ministries, but he gives you two perfecting tools. we got to do this so quick. All right, the, Number one is this, perfection is accomplished by Scripture. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3 is on the screen. You know this verse, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? For what purpose? That the man of God may be perfect. Remember the, the goal he gave pastors and teachers? For the perfecting of the saints. What does that? Scripture does that. That's why it's important for you to feed them. One of your primary ministries is to feed. So one of the primary tools that he gives you is Scripture. So preach the Scripture. Don't preach your opinions. Don't give some emotional story. Don't give some kind of pop psychology. Preach the Word. We saw that last night. That's what we're called to do. The Word of God, according to Ephesians 5, is what sanctifies and cleanses the church. It's what cleanses it's what sanctifies. Acts 20, 32 says it's what builds us up. 1 Peter 2, 2, it's what grows up babes in Christ. Psalm 19 says the word converts the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. Feeding is one of your primary ministries. And the way you do that, the tool you use, is the word of God. Let it work its wonderful work that you can't do, but the word of God can do it. So feed them. With the word of God, quickly, I want to show you this. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He's talking about Jesus, and he says, Whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom. Why? That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And that's going to take work. That's why he says, Whereunto I also labor. It's going to take work to really preach the word. That's what, We know that, right? 2 Timothy 2, 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God. What's it going to take? A workman. To labor in the word and doctrine. If you want to teach the, teach the flock, if you want to feed them, you've got to do some work in the word. So don't be coming. Don't be showing up with some downloaded sermon, some podcast ripoff, some half-baked message, or some intellectualism, or some story time. Preach the word. Do the work of a workman. Number two is this. Perfection is accomplished by prayer. 
I want you to check this out. Colossians chapter 4. We got two main ministries, right? It's feeding, and so he gives us scripture. And it's leading, so he gives us prayer. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, talks about Epaphras. And he says, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, he saluteth you. And he's always what? Laboring fervent for you in prayers. Why? That ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. You see, pastors, God has given you two main ministries, and he's given you two goals to accomplish it. So you feed them with the word of God, and you lead them in prayer, always in prayer. And in fact, this makes clear why the apostles wanted to ordain deacons or appoint deacons, because that was their main two tools of ministry. Look at it, Acts 6, 4 is on the screen. We will give ourselves continually to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word, because God's given us two main tools, pastor. He's called you to perfect the saints. You do it through feeding the word of God and by leading in prayer. We got to go on to number uh, or letter B in your notes. God calls the flock to follow their shepherd. Now, so far, pastors, you've kind of received the brunt of this. So sit back for a second. Let me talk to congregations, to flocks. See, God's given you a gift. And what does he expect you to do? Number one is you're to know your pastors. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, which specifically ones, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. You ought to know your pastors, and you ought to be known by them. Oftentimes we think pastors are so busy, and they are busy. But one of the things you need, you need to know them. And you need... And they need that as well. It's easy to get isolated when you're the leader. And to be a healthy pastor, the sheep need to know the pastor, and the pastor needs to know the sheep. That's what Jesus says in John 10, where he calls himself the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. And some of that responsibility is, is on us pastors. But it's also on the congregation to know your pastors, and maybe it won't be your lead pastor, but you need to know somebody on your team of pastors. You need to have a relational connection to your pastors. Number two, pray for your pastors. Your pastors need prayer. So pray for his sermons. Pray that as he's feeding the flock, God would give him wisdom and insight and words in his preaching. Pray that God would work through him. Pray for his family. Man, listen, you know the weak spot? For every pastor? Oh, Satan knows it. He can get that family. How many pastors' kids are burned out because they see the fighting in the church? They see the way their parents are treated. Man, you better pray for their family. He knows that's a spot. How, how many wives get discouraged and end up hating the church because they feel like they robbed their husband? Listen, pray for your, your pastor's family. Pray for your pastor's protection. There are evil men, and Satan would use them. You know what? Jesus said to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. You better pray for their protection. Listen, a wolf knows that if he can take down the shepherd, the sheep are just easy prey. Pray for him. Pray for his physical and spiritual and emotional health. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28, Paul goes through all the list of afflictions that he has in ministry, and he ends with this. He concludes with, That which cometh upon me daily, the care of the churches. Listen, it is, it is a stressful 
enormous weight that your pastor carries. He bears other people's burdens. He knows about conflicts and problems in the church, and he carries them in his soul that you don't even know about. Pray for him. I left in your notes some, some prayers, some prayer requests from Paul. You can look over those and, and read those, but we've got to go to number three. Is the next thing you need to do is pay your pastors. You need to pay them. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, we've seen it already. It says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. How much should I pay them? Well, figure out how much they're worth and double it. Especially those, so if they rule well and they labor in the word and doctrine, man, that guy is worthy of whatever you can afford to pay him. And he probably won't take what you could afford to pay him. You ought to try to pay him that. And he goes on and he says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. And the laborer is worthy of his reward. By the way, you don't give out of charity to your pastor. Well, I got to it. Not out of obligation. You do it out of gratitude and respect for their labor. They've earned it. Hopefully, we've taught our members uh, well enough to know that the spiritual blessings of a pastor are far more valuable than the carnal compensation that we could give them in money. Uh, let me give you a couple verses to write down. We're not going to go there. 1 Corinthians 9, 7-11, through 11, and Galatians 6, 6. God's really, uh, he's really passionate about this idea that an, a laborer is worthy of his reward. And don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. Number four in your notes is this, follow your pastors. Maybe you've got a great pastor. Hey, maybe you don't. I don't know. But I know this, God sets people in a church. And you may see flaws in your pastor, but just like, it's like God knew what my wife needed when he, he brought us together. There was a work he was wanting to do in her heart, and so he gave her a flawed leader, me. And you know what he's done that in our churches too? He knows who he wants to be pastors in your churches. And he knows they're not perfect. But there are some things you need to learn. You need to learn to submit to and follow somebody who's not perfect. And by the way, nobody's perfect. Even Jeff, as wonderful as he seems, on a podcast and when I come in once a year, man, I love him. I think you guys are so blessed. I bet he's probably, maybe even has a flaw. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Just write it down. We're not going to go there. Number five is respect your pastors. Pastors are gifts from God. So thank God for his gifts. Listen, i got to show you this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. We saw that. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Hey, and by the way, be at peace among yourselves. You know, <laughs> the deal is, Joe talked about how he wants to see his kids get along. A pastor wants to see the church family get along. And you know, a lot of the strain and stress of his position and the, and the office that he holds could be solved if you just quit bickering and be at peace. So be at peace and respect your pastors. Number six is trust your pastors. 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Receive not is the command. Not, don't accuse your pastor. But don't receive an accusation. Don't act on some accusation. It doesn't say that. Don't believe that. Act no, it doesn't say that. Don't investigate. No, it doesn't say that. It says don't even receive it. That means reject it. 
I've done this on more than one occasion where someone has come to me and told me something about a leader in our church, and I just say, I don't believe it. And it kind of throws them off for a second. What, what, what do you mean? You don't, I don't believe that. I, I know their character. I know who they are. I, I just can't believe that that's true. I, I, I'm going to go talk to them. I'm going to ask them. But I don't believe it. Don't entertain it. Don't receive it. A key to this, though, is to ordain the right kind of people. Make sure they match 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. You know, in our whacked out Western churchianity, Bible colleges ordain elders, pastors. Denominations ordain pastors. And they do that based on their qualifications of reading Greek or paying tuition, writing papers, taking tests. Not about their spiritual maturity. Not about their character quality. So we end up in this place. But he tells us not to receive an accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses. There are times when you're supposed to receive an accusation. When there are two or three witnesses. It doesn't say two or three talebearers or tattlers, but two or three witnesses. Not I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend you've been messing around. But a witness... Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, you could write that down. Matthew 18 and verse 16, church discipline is handled by two or three witnesses. And by the way, he's speaking to Timothy. He's the one, the lead pastor of Ephesus. He's the one that will receive the accusations. So when you have an accusation, it doesn't go to the congregations, to the other church members. It goes straight to the leaders of the church. Number seven and the last one. Hold your pastors accountable. Joe mentioned we all need accountability. And while we don't receive accusations, we do hold them accountable. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Let a man so account of me as minister and stewards of the mysteries of God, because it's required that I'm found faithful. Uh, let me get you to write down a couple, and we'll move on. 1 Corinthians 16.3. And 2 Corinthians 8, 19, in both cases, there's someone who's going to travel with Paul or travel with money to make sure it's being spent properly. Listen, I openly welcome transparency, even to things that maybe the whole church doesn't need to know, but I want people to know. I want, to, I want people to have eyes on what's being spent. I want people to have eyes into how we're functioning. That's important. 2 Timothy 5, 19 and 20 is up on the screen. It tells you what to do uh, with somebody who does have two or three witnesses, and then they sin. So hold on, pastors. Before you say, yeah, I want to be a pastor. He says, them that sin, rebuke before all. That you, got, you got a pastor, an elder who sins? You can't just handle that. If you got two or three witnesses, listen, this is what I've learned in ministry. If two or three people know about it, a whole lot of people are going to know about it. And you deal with it before all. James 3.1 explains why. He says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Uh, let me write, have you write this verse down. Uh, 2 Samuel 24.17. This is David, and it actually uses the, the word sheep as he's talking about. Remember he numbered the people of Israel? It was a sin. And God is punishing him for his sin. But it doesn't just affect him. It affects all God's people. In fact, this is what he said. Go and put it on the screen. He says, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. 
But these sheep, what have they done? Did you know, pastors, when you sin, you affect the whole flock in ways that maybe you didn't foresee or can't understand? It doesn't even make logical sense why it does, but it affects the whole flock. Roman numeral three, and we'll be done, is called to avoid. What do you avoid? Well, God's given us qualified leadership. That's what he's ordained to be over the church. So what do we avoid is unqualified leadership. And this rears its ugly head in a couple different uh, ways. One is parachurch equipping. He's called us to equip the saints, to perfect the saints. And uh, we'll see more of that tomorrow. But one of the reasons why God's called the church to do that and not a college or a university or a training center is because over the church, he requires qualified, ordained leadership. And parachurch organizations are not required to have qualified, ordained leadership. And in many cases, do not. Some may, and may, some may for a while, but some don't. And sometimes it may seem innocent. Sometimes it is not innocent, right? The, uh, if you find somebody who's trying to steal authority away from the local church where God has vested it, that's not innocent. That's intentional. When a professor diminishes the authority of a local church pastor, oh, your pastor doesn't know very much. That's, here, this is what you need to do. Then uh, he is a wolf. If a, if a professor diminishes the authority and the reliability of the Bible, that's not innocent. He's trying to set himself above the authority that God has ordained, and he's a wolf. If you find a professor who diminishes the role and the identity of the local church, it's not really that important to be sent out by a church. It's not really that important to have biblically qualified leaders who are over you and give you accountability. That guy's wicked. He's a wolf. And it's as wicked as a predator trying to convince a young girl to come with him instead of obeying what her parents say. It's subverting God's authority and it's wickedness. Now, some, I'm not saying that's everybody in parachurch organizations. But we've got to be careful. Because God has vested authority where he has for a reason. There's safety and there's security in there. And oftentimes you'll find professors, they love to use big vocabulary. Makes them sound intelligent. They'll make you think they know more than your pastor. And indeed, they may. But it's your pastor who God has specifically called to be over you in the Lord. To train you, to be your mentor, to be your perfecter. He mandates the pastor, to grow and to train you. And it is possible to spend five or more years of your life and $100,000 or more of your money and be left only with head knowledge and no real training at all. But regardless of the efficacy of Bible colleges and seminaries and training centers outside the local church, we ultimately rely on this because this is what God's Word says. This is the pattern of Scripture. So the lack of qualified, ordained leaders in parachurch organizations results in uh, wanting a career instead of a calling. After spending $100,000, you're looking for a job. There's nothing wrong with looking for and desiring vocational ministry. But when that gets ahead of the calling, then you got problems. It results in inefficacy. The people graduating have no ministry experience. They've been taken out of the local church to learn how to minister within a local church. It ends up in immaturity. You know, a, a piece of paper, even if it's a diploma or a degree, does not mean you're spiritually mature. 
God has a process of discipleship, and specifically, he has empowered pastors to perfect the saints. He has not promised that a professor can do that. In fact, Paul says you have 10,000 instructors, but you don't have many fathers. And I speak this to your shame. There's heresy that comes in. When you don't have a shepherd at a university or a Bible college or training center, you don't have a shepherd over that, you know what happens? Wolves come in. And we see it across the board in the United States. Heresy takes over in Bible colleges. And then we start to identify which ones are better than the other. And finally, apostasy. You know, oftentimes in these parachurch equipping organizations, the professors aren't even in a local church. Not only are they not pastors, but many times they've abandoned the local church. They've abandoned the truth of the scripture. They've even abandoned the fundamentals of the faith. Do you believe in a literal place called hell? The majority do not. So we have parachurch equipping and finally parachurch authority. So we've seen that God has vested leadership of the local church within the local church with pastors and elders. So we are to avoid unqualified leadership outside of the local church. Sometimes that's a global leadership like a pope over a Catholic church or a national leadership like the Episcopal or United Methodist General Session or General Council is a variant of that. Sometimes we see that in denominational leadership like Presbyterian councils and uh, presbyteries and synods and general assemblies or uh, other ways that we see this where it's anybody besides the local church pastors who rule that local church. We are to be autonomous, not isolated, but cooperating together, but having self-governing. Sometimes we see this distortion, uh, unqualified leadership, not just outside the local church, but within the local church. And we see that through congregational voting. And I know this may be unpopular for many churches, but God has not set up a democracy within the church. Our Western, uh, you know, we love democracy, even though we're not a democracy. We are a republic in this country. Uh, We love the idea of democracy. We all want to have a say. We want some, even if it's limited, some authority in the direction of the church. That's not the way God set it up. Now, don't misunderstand this. At any given time, over any given subject, man, the the Bible gives the pastor the, the liberty to say, hey, I want to hear what the church thinks about this. I want the church's heart. Should we move to this other building? Should, should we change the name of the church? Should we do whatever? And he wants to hear. Praise the Lord for that. That's because he's a good pastor and he wants to know what the bride thinks. He wants to hear the flock. The problem is when the congregation possesses the right to decide when that's going to be. Another way we see this played out is through deacon leadership. Well, we see deacons leading a church, and that's not who God's called to lead the church. He's called them to serve the church. And when we take authority from where God has vested, listen, at any given time, in any given specific situation, pastors have the right to say, deacons, we want for you to lead this. We want for you to make this decision, or we want you to be in control of this specific area. That's fine. That's their, that's their right, the way to rule, and maybe even rule well for that church. The problem is, when the deacons possess the right to decide when that is. Another way that we see this distorted within the local church is through what I'll call non-pastor elder rule. Some denominations call people elders who aren't pastor, and they complicate the problem. They're essentially, uh, you know, deacons, but 
they give them the Bible's terminology for the pastor, an elder. And so it's the same problems with the deacon. It's just compounded by giving them a a title of a pastor. Okay, so any of us, man, if you're a congregation, we can usurp God's authority by going around the pastor to do things the way we want to do it. Maybe we got a good reason for that. We got a burden for this, or we think some other way is right, but we always got to go by God's standard, his word, and follow his pattern. And same thing for pastors. When we get outside of the leadership of the great shepherd and his word, we usurp authority from where God intended it to be. So the church is a flock. We have the most wonderful shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He's a great shepherd. He's a chief shepherd. And listen, he is bigger than any pastor. We heard already, he, you know, he holds kings like, like rivers in his hands. He can change them however he wants. And when we submit to those who are rule over us, we employ God into our situation. But pastors, God's given you an enormous responsibility to feed and lead the flock, to perfect the saints. Let's not be delinquent. Let's not be negligent so somebody feels like they have to go somewhere else to get trained for ministry. That's specifically the calling God has for us. I know I'm late on time. I yield the remainder of my time to Matt Rockert.